This is a Sunday talk by Todd Corbett, titled "Certainty Through Naked Attention," recorded June seventeenth, two thousand and twelve, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So this morning, I wanted to talk a little bit about our path and really what it's about. But one thing about the path that we often lose sight of is that we believe that it's taking us somewhere. Even the name. The path gives us this sense that we're off to some new place, some new terrain. But in fact, the path is not taking us anywhere. Rather, the practices and the teachings that we hear are pointing to what is already here. This reality, which does not really change, there's a lot of flux arising and passing away, but the reality is unchanging. T.S. Eliot sums this up when he says, "We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploration will be to arrive where we started and to know the place for the first time." So the path is an exploration of what we believe to be true. It's not really an exploration of the absolute truth. It is present already. Our problem is what we hold as belief. We sense there is something deeper than belief, but usually we cover it up. We hide from that. Belief is our explanation of things, our ontological assumptions about how things are, the way things are. But something is lacking, and we know it. Simone Weil, a Christian mystic of the last century, puts it this way. She says, "In what concerns divine things." Belief is not fitting. Only certainty will do. Anything less than certainty is unworthy of God. So this is sort of、uh, something to look into when we're doing our practices. We don't want to just buy any old story about reality. In fact, all stories are just stories. To find this certainty that she speaks of is not to find a belief. It's not a story. It's something to recognize. But we recognize it through examining what is false, which is much of which is our our beliefs. Belief is like bad science. It's based upon false assumptions. Yet claims to be empirical. The path is like pure science, using true empiricism, attention, and a deep sense of honesty. When we awaken, it is an awakening from beliefs. 
course, we hold beliefs about everything. And what are they? They're, they're just ideas, right? They're just ideas about things. But we hold them in place through a kind of conviction. We believe they're true. And they're not arbitrary because we have a kind of an attachment to it being the way we think it is. And this has a lot to do with how we see ourselves. We want to, we want to know what is going on. We want to see things clearly. And, and some, some beliefs have less emotional baggage than others, of course. In fact, if we just examine this, we can say, yeah, this is a gong. That's a belief. It doesn't have a lot of emotional baggage attached to it. So it seems, if we were to drop it on the floor and it broke, I would feel a little bad about it. Not a lot of emotional attachment there. But if it's your gong and it was given to you by the Dalai Lama himself <laughs> and it fell on the floor and it broke, now there we would discover some deep attachment. Now what's funny about attachment is we don't even know we're attached until we lose it. Until that thing is gone. Until it breaks on the floor. Suddenly, we feel this deep sense of sorrow, sadness, suffering. So attachments, we may go, I have no attachments, but then the first thing that we're clinging to that disappears, we're going to feel suffering. So that attests to the fact of an attachment. So this is something we want to be aware of on our path, because the real thing about Attachment is, it's all about the story of I. It's all about the delusion of self. Now, another thing about beliefs is that there is a congruency of beliefs that we kind of demand. We don't want to have some weird thing happen that totally rocks us inside. In other words, if the sun were to set in the east, and we just saw it setting into the east, there would be some alarms going off. Now, even though, you know, every day we see the sun setting in the west, we have no attachment. It's not yet, of course. Yeah. Sun sets in the west. But if it sets in the east, there's some anxiety. Birds started flying backwards. <laughs> We're going to be really worried. <laughs> so, we don't feel attached to our arm until it goes missing. These are important things to see. This little fact, this little way that attachments keep us deluded. They're guiding us. We don't see them. But when we lose them, there they are. So that is our, our mechanism for discovery. Here's another belief. So what is this? It's a rock. It's a rock. Okay. Taco shell. Taco shell. <laughs> so it's got a lot of names. You could also call it a stone. But do we really know what this is? 
We have a lot of names for it. But what is it really? Do we know? We lay a name on it and we go, that's a rock. I know it's a rock. But that's just a name superimposed over something. Over what? What are we looking at here? So let's say it's visual phenomena. Isn't that what we're seeing? Visual phenomena? We don't know what this is. I mean, of course, the mind does. The mind is going to give us a name and it's going to superimpose it on that experience of naked visual phenomena. In fact, every time we see anything, in that first micro-moment, we don't know what it is at all. And then the mind comes in with the name, with the perception. And it appears to be instantaneous. But through practice, we can discover that it is not instantaneous. We superimpose name and perception onto these visual phenomena, and we do it deftly, without even knowing it. As Christ tells us in the Thomas Gospel, the kingdom of heaven is laid upon the earth, but people do not see it. These naked visual phenomena are a clue to what he is talking about. As soon as we put name and perception over this, we are hiding something. The more we come to see what it is that is here, which is nothing at all, then we begin to intuit what Christ was talking about. So how do we get active? Well, our problem is, once again, we have an attachment to the belief that this is a stone. And so we have a very great difficulty in actually peeling that back and noticing what is actually here. We are deeply embedded in our beliefs because they support this story by. As soon as we see a thing, a stone, we create an entire array of separate objects in this moment. If we actually could see naked visual phenomena constantly without the grasping coming in and, and planting these, these beliefs in our perception, in, our, in the way that we see, we would begin to notice a fluid, flowing reality in which we are not separate, in which there is no separation at all. So when we hold a belief about anything, we are creating an imaginary separation, imaginary distinctions, which serve us quite nicely in the world, but if we actually believe them, if we have an attachment to that belief, then we suffer. Because it isn't a thing. It is flowing. 
One of the beliefs that obstructs our non-dual seeing, this, this recognition of the flowing nature of this oneness of things, is the belief, paradoxically, in impermanence. We believe things are impermanent. You mean permanent? Mm-hmm. No. We believe they are impermanent. And that's our problem. Because you see, it's a belief. We believe it to be true. And when we believe it to be true, we are actually veiling the true impermanence. We don't see it. We don't recognize it. Because, oh, you know, things grow old. They wear out. Oh, I've got some gray hair, some wrinkles. We don't see it. But when we look at this, and we recognize the naked suchness of it, the naked visual phenomenon, we begin to see true impermanence. Because this is not this, is not this, is not this, is not this. In fact, this is not this. It is not this. Because every moment is a mind moment. It is something that is being construed and contrived, and it's fresh and new. And so this, when it is seen truly, is always new. Always new. So on our path, it is so important for us then to investigate how we hold beliefs. Visual phenomena, they are sensations. And in medical science, it is said that uh, the visual organ actually is a highly developed form of epidermis. The, The same nerve endings that we find in the skin. So, in other words, it is pure sensation when we see But we superimpose a name, an image, over that naked suchness. So contemplate that for a moment. Yeah? But most of that comes from memory. Yes. So are you saying that memory is a belief? Yes, it is a belief. Well, here, let's make a distinction there. The fact that memory is arising and we take it to be real reality, like story, then yes, it's a belief. But if we recognize thought as thought, yeah. But the problem with that is if you know you've shown us that rock now, uh-huh. and uh, there's a memory of it, a thought, right? And you know, there's that thought that says it's still right there on the table. Exactly. Like something's out there in the streets if you left and you came in here and 
And when you go back out there, it's still there. Yeah, so this is this makes it seem contrary. This is why it's so important to really look into the nature of impermanence. There's only this which is arising now. So this is important to see. If you look up here and you go, yeah, but the rock's on the table. Is that the same rock that we were holding up? This is the problem we get into because we rely on memory. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with memory. Memory is wonderful. The fact that we can, the fact that we can refer to this and make it into something solid and real is wonderful. The problem is the attachment to that. The belief itself, the story itself, the images themselves, the perception, they're fine. It's the, it's the way that we cling to that belief that blocks us from actually recognizing that what we're really seeing here always is our self. This is our self, our own being, right here. There's no separation between what is seen and the seeing of it. And when we discover that, we recognize this only now, always. I mean, always is sort of one of those kind of useless words. It doesn't even mean anything. Because it's always just now. 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 So, so this is shocking to the mind. And the mind goes, that's not right. There's something wrong with that. And we'll, we'll argue with it, of course. And we should argue with it. If you take this, you know, if you listen to me and let me tell you this, and you believe it, you're just believing something. That's not what this is about. We're pointing to something. We are trying to awaken the naked consciousness that is not conditioned. Did that answer your question? Or is there still a piece to that? Because it seemed like... Yeah, so you're saying just keep arguing. Keep arguing, keep looking. Memory comes up. What is memory? It arises just now. And it's, it's a facade. And it's the way that we can have this wonderful relationship in the world. Now you've got another question. <laughs> well, I just keep going back to that you know, thing in the street. I mean, you know, it's like, yeah, you see it, but out there... Okay, so let me just run this by you. We believe we know what that thing in the street is. And we believe it is solid and constant. We come in here and we do stuff. And then we go, oh, that thing in the street, let me go see if it's still there. I Actually, on my path, I used to do this. I mean, it was, I was always, I'd hear all these teachings and i go, okay, I'm driving up to Cloud Mountain. Now, how is it that Cloud Mountain is actually here when I get here? And that was my question for Joel, I don't know, 15 years ago. And it drove me crazy. And he goes, well, you just keep looking. But, you know, there is more that can be said. Because listen, this thing in the street, we think it's a, a, a piece of wood. Ah, a piece of wood on the sidewalk. We come in here, we go back out. Ah, there's that piece of wood. We never actually knew what that was. We thought it was a piece of wood. Our mind designated it piece of wood. The fact is, what we see on the sidewalk could have been, somebody could have come up and removed it and put something else there, like, a, like a, another piece of wood that looked just like it. How would we know? Well, you see, the point is that it's always new. So it is never the same piece of wood. Never. And this is, the, this is breaking into this 
this thing that we have locked away, this unconditioned consciousness, this awareness, this naked seeing, it's always new. When we discover this, then we are not fooled. The sun sets in the east and it's fine. It doesn't really matter anymore because it's all shell. So, does that help? Now, you keep looking, though, you see. There's no real answer that I can give you that's going to help you with that question. Does, does anybody else have a question about this? Or a comment about, about Mike's question? Okay. Um, this is, in a certain way, this, this is the crux of a lot of the struggle with you know, this, this view. Um, I can imagine how... Uh, in the development of our being, of our, our humanness, or just even our animalness, that, you know, you go out of a cave, you know, you see the bear there, you know, you run back in the cave, you know, you come out and the bear's still there and he eats your brother or whatever. Whoa, bear, not good, you run back in. And then a certain kind of relationship with external reality comes. Every time lightning strikes, you know, you know, right, sure. it destroys something. So the next time you see it, you move in the other direction. It's, and that is conditioning, and that is perfectly fine. Right. So what I'm trying to say that. is there's an aspect to this conditioning that's based on um, fear and survival needs and, and the need for regularity in the world. Like exactly. if I'm walking and I see what looks like quicksand, it's in my interest to not take another step. And that's not um, because I'm attached. It's because my brother just died in that quicksand yesterday, so I know, don't go there. Now let me just say something about this. because whenever, whenever I get this teaching... This is where it always goes. <laughs> and, and what I'm basically getting to here is, is that we are realizing something about reality. We are not trying to change this conditioning. We want to be afraid of that bear or that tiger. We don't want to get in the way of that. That process is, is playing itself out. The, the distinction here, though, is that it isn't a me it's like this is all conditioned and it's constantly being conditioned. As we do this practice, we, it's like we are dropping down into this place where we are recognizing that all of our stories, all of our contrivances are, on the one hand, necessary, but on the other hand, they are contrivances. And the reason for doing all of these practices is to discover there is no self. But you see, we can't know that as long as we are reacting and attached to the story of I and however it's playing. You know, it's just all conditioning and, you know, the, the piece of wood is really, you know, it's always new. And, but what we want you to see is that everything is that way, including this sense of self. You'll, you'll read this in Zen literature. First there were mountains and streams. Then there were no mountains. First there were mountains and streams. And then through practice we saw, ah, there are no mountains and streams. But then as the realization deepened suddenly, ah, there are mountains and streams. <laughs> but now mountains and streams are non-dual. We recognize them within a different context. It's like a shift in the base of reference. The way we see it is different. Well, Todd, I yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes. um, when, when, when you say, or if it's moment to moment, everything changes, that is immeasurable, correct? You can't measure 
how quick that piece of wood is renewed or whatever. There's no. Is there any scientific way of measuring? Say, the best way of. Not that it's there. There's nothing. I mean, is it staccato? Is it a milli? I mean, there's no way to measure it, is there? There's really no time involved. I believe that what you're saying is kind of okay. He's enlightened. He's saying. And every moment it's in a piece of wood. How long is that? The point is that there... I use the word moment only because there's no other word to describe it, but it's it's really not a temporal thing at all. Well, do you see it as an enlightened person? Okay. Do you just believe it's there? But no, but you can see this too. Now, it's not about belief. Now, don't you be doing that. <laughs> <laughs> For example, we have an object. And then... We go into meditation. Now you know we use our breath. But yeah, the object in this case is a visual phenomenon. So we're gazing at the visual phenomena, and if we gaze at it and just let everything else go, we begin to discover. You know, we see mental phenomena being superimposed. We just recognize those as they are. We don't try to push them away but we start to recognize the naked visual phenomenon. And in that recognition, we begin to notice what our mental phenomenon, the, the, the name and perception, was hiding from us. And that is, this thing, sitting here just as it is, is not static. If we gaze at it, we begin to notice that it is always slightly different, shifting. And if we gaze at it more, we begin to realize what I said earlier, that there is really no distinction between the gong and the awareness of it. That the awareness that, that makes it come into being is not separate from the gong. In other words, the gong is retention. So it's, it's not that it's some time frame that it's happening in but that it is constantly new. And we discover that we are no different. Now this is this is basically what I'm getting at here. Does this totally does this make any sense at all? Yeah. When the Buddha was you know, deciding whether to give teachings or not, he really kind of thought that, well, people aren't going to get this. This is crazy stuff. And but then, you know, the 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 Fables go that the gods came to him and told him that yes, but there are some people that have very little dust in their eyes that would be able to see this. And so that's you guys. Yeah. So um, I just have to kind of clarify what, because you said when we awaken, we see things in a non dual way. Does non dual mean that we don't have attachment to whether something's there or not? The attachments, if attachments are arising, they are arising to themselves. They are arising in consciousness. And, uh, for example, if, if the Buddha has a friend you know, that, that dies, this, this very close friend dies, the Buddha feels sorrow. The Buddha you know, looks like he's suffering, and, but the Buddha is not suffering. There is no Buddha. There is no body that's suffering. There is no body that becomes enlightened. Enlightenment is the recognition that there is no one here. 
But that doesn't mean that there isn't a, uh, you know, this whole play of form. There's hands and arms. It's a recognition. It's a discovery of something. We all know this. It is our, it is our reality. The reason we don't see it is because these beliefs, these stories, keep co-opting the truth. They keep burying it. We fixate on something like the piece of wood out, out the door. We, we see that. We go, wow, but it's... No, it's solid. And we, we use stories to keep protecting the story of I, the, the sense of me. It's who we think we are. But when we see beneath the grasping, what we discover is there's no one here other than this grasping. The grasping and pushing away, when they are absent, this is the absence of self. And the only reason that grasping and pushing away would ever cease would be if we had recognized that these things that we are attached to are transient and not truly a thing in themselves. But now, you see, when I say that, it sounds like it sounds like I'm saying that things and people are not important. That's not it. They are very important. This is all the expression of God. This is all divine disclosure. It's all Buddha mind. And so in seeing the truth, we actually recognize a deep humility. It's a humility, a sense of selflessness gives rise to a recognition that it's all one. Only, you know, when I say that it's all one, it sort of sort of implies that there's another one, but it's not that kind of one. It's just it's whole. It's a wholeness. Let's just take a moment and let's all do this little experiment. I said earlier that visual phenomena are actually just sensations. So, if you lay, gaze at the gong here for a moment and, and notice the notice the the mental phenomena, the, the stories, the names arising. But notice the visual phenomena in themselves. This. Sensations. Now there's something telling us that there is, this is static still. Is this your experience? Okay, so I want to investigate this a little bit. The visual field, this visual phenomenon, is really deeply conditioned with, with stories. The, the, the mental phenomena just come in and really define the visual, the visual field. It's a big problem for us initially on the path until we kind of get used to it. But I want you to just take your right hand and I want you to press it on your left forearm. Now remove it. Now press it again and remove it. Again, remove it. Again, remove it. Now, 
Question. Were these, each of these separate, new and different touchings? They were, right? They're each one. And then, yeah, new, new, new. So now take your forefinger and place it on your forearm. And what is the difference? Hold it there. New, 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 new. Do you see? It's always new. When we get that, we begin to recognize, and if we do this quietly, and we just become aware, like we're doing our meditation, and we feel our butt on the cushion, it starts to inform us. You begin to see the timeless moment. Timelessness starts to show itself. And then we can take it back to visual phenomena once again. And we look at this visual phenomena. We're still aware of how the mind wants to label it. But we see the naked visual and it's just like this. New. 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 With repeated practice, this can be very profound for us. It's sort of a stretch. But as we do it, suddenly we'll see something. We actually recognize timelessness. So it's really about experience. It's not about knowledge. Because experience cuts through our attachments to our thoughts, the way things are. When we have a direct experience of timelessness, not just an idea. It goes deep. And then, everything we see is different. We start to notice the timeless quality. That Look around. The whole room. It's all new just now. Fresh. On our path before we ever really kind of get to meditation, there's something that that kind of keeps us from our path and which ultimately gets us on our path. And that is this. When we want something, some worldly thing, we want it because we want to be happy. We have a belief about it. And when we finally get it, you know, we've been working hard, who knows what it is, a car, uh, a job, uh, a lover. We finally get this. And when we realize that we've actually got it, we feel this joy, just this happiness. You know that feeling, right? You've got it. You got it! Yes! That feeling is not what we thought. That feeling comes because something stops. 
right in the moment of getting what we strive for. When we get it, our grasping, our wanting, our needing stops. And in that stopping, there is no self. We are actually finding this non-dual state just for a moment, every time we get what we want. We get what we want and we stop striving. The problem is we attribute it to the attainment itself. And so then the next time we want to strive some more for the next thing and the next thing. And the reason that we eventually come to the spiritual path is because we know that that feeling, there's something real about it. So, we come to the path and through working with grasping and attachments, we come to realize this, that we were always getting. We, we discover the happiness, the joy of non-grasping, non-self. And the more we practice, the more we see it. The more we open it, the more the sense of self falls away. And this sets the stage for awakening, for a true awakening. This is really an awakening in itself. But for a, for a total opening of the heart, it's not something we can do at all. It's sort of a, we, we just set the stage by letting go of the attachment, and we let go of the attachment only through seeing the grasping and the facade behind what we are grasping. So in the end, everything remains just as it is. But all distinctions are empty. Zen Master Singstan describes it this way in his in the Sensen Ming which is the realization of the Heart-Mind Sutra. And I'm going to just read you a couple of little passages from it. He says, The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. And preference meaning not grasping for things. When hope and fear are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. This is that duality. We make a distinction based on attachment. Heaven and earth are split infinitely apart. And then describing the realization, he says, and the realization being the emptiness of, of distinction. The imaginary nature of distinctions. He says, emptiness here, emptiness there, but the infinite universe stands always before you. Infinitely large and infinitely small, no difference, for definitions have vanished and no boundaries are seen. Take a moment here and let your mind settle.
and then we'll have some questions. is always here. And it is our true identity. We discover that. 
And then, you know, it doesn't mean that if, you know, I'm walking down the street and a tiger comes up, I'm going to, like, come up and try to pet it. I'm going to be, like, you know, heading down the road with everybody else. Of course. You see, if you try to get in the way of conditioning, who is doing that? You create self as soon as you start struggling with the process. So, it isn't about trying to change anything. It's about seeing, truly seeing. And what seeing is, is opening your heart. It's, you know, one thing that, one thing that we discover on the path is this willingness to look at things. We, we find that a lot of times we don't want to see we don't want to know there is no self. So we get very close to it and suddenly, ah, no, don't, I, don't, I don't want to go there. That's just too complicated. My mind isn't going to like this. And I, I'm not going to be able to function. But this is not true. We can function. We do function just fine. Working in the hospital, everything gets taken care of. And, I, and my sense is that it gets taken care of a whole lot better now than it ever did before. Because there's all that delusion about all this other stuff is gone. Now one thing too, from that, I think it's really important on the path to look into your own death. To really look into your own demise. And the reason I say that is that as long as we haven't done that, there is probably, like I said earlier, an attachment hiding in the wings um, that as soon as you get the terminal diagnosis, it's going to pop up. And it's going to be huge. So it's very, very helpful. And uh, and in the Buddhist, uh, in many different Buddhist circles, it's all about going out in the charnel grounds and sitting with the rotting corpses and, and recognizing that all of these bodies, they're no different than this body. You know, seeing the worms, and the you know all the rest of the smell, but to just be aware of your own death and, and really bring it, you know, go out and set up a will. If you haven't done that, it's very useful. Face death, and a lot of the delusions around it will kind of dissipate and give you more flexibility and make it possible for you to deepen your practice. Whatever you are resisting in your path is your own enlightenment. Whatever it is. The fact that you are turning away from it is preventing enlightenment. Because you are turning away, this is division. So whenever we divide ourselves from any aspect of what is, we remain deluded. And that's the whole process. Did that? And, and more. And, and on and on and on. <laughs> anyway. Okay. okay. Anybody else? <laughs> yes? To me, what you've been saying sounds a lot like what I've been reading with Eckhart Tolle, and he talks about the ego self and the, the real self, and the true self, the real self. And, and we all know, you know, there are many examples of the ego self. Yes. Defined by, defined by prestige, you know, 
degrees and certificates and possessions. Right. But it seems much harder to come up with an example of the real self. The best that I've been able to come up with is it's more more attitude and process than things, like, like caring more about other people. What would you comment on that? So yes, we start to care more about other people, but ultimately this, this other self that Eckhart Tolle is talking about... I, you know, one of our problems is that we get stuck in semantics and words are, I'd say words are probably our biggest um, obstacle because we take our language to be, to represent something real and solid, but really it's just full of all kinds of ways of making duality. But when he talks about the true self, he's really talking about no self. It is the, it is the recognition that it, there is nobody here and so consequently, what we experience is wholeness. We just get out of the way of the body-mind process that's running. It does what it does. It's not concerned about itself. So we call that a kind of a self, I guess. I mean, if you wanted to. But for the purposes of practice, it's really useful to, to recognize any kind of a self is something to get stuck in. Because we can... You know, and we, when we do um, practices, we can get to this place where we have this subtle sense of a self. Very subtle. You know, it's, just, it's like spirit. But you see, if we're identified with that, we're not truly free. We're not free of the self. We, ha- we still have a belief that is holding us, that we are identified with. But then the rest of your question... Yes, the practices as we go along free up. The self becomes more and more humble, naturally humble. The more we see into the nature of things, the impermanence of things, the more we let go. And the more we the more we recognize our own death, we recognize the deaths of others. And we look out at people and we we start to realize that, oh, we're all going to die. So, you know, in that worldly way of seeing things, our hearts open. And in that opening, we see a more deeply um, configured pattern of how things are. But it is really about kindness. The whole path turns out to be a path of kindness. When we have troubling emotions, if we resist them, we're not being kind. There's a kind of violence there. In a sense, we are embracing our troubled emotions. We embrace them with our attention by being aware of them in a kind way. I don't know, did that help you? Yes. Okay, good. Good. Yes, Ken. Uh, yeah, I was uh, <clears throat> thinking about my my own, what probably the biggest stumbling block on my path is, is uh, uh, associations my mind comes up with when I look at anything. For instance, when you, you came over here and sat down sideways and looked over there, I thought, well, that's an aspect of talk that I'd never seen before. That's fascinating. But immediately, just a few nanoseconds after that, I was saying, Whistler's mother. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know, my, my field is I spent my life in art. Blank wall behind you, and a picture on the wall, and the whole thing. So that—that's what my mind does to me 
And this is what clients do. They make free associations all the time. And there's nothing really wrong with that. You know? We just want to be, be clear about, and you are, right? You know, this is just this is just the play of the mind. Correct? Yeah. You don't have any no belief in that. You know, deep attachment, are you? Well, there must be some attachment to it because I haven't let go of it completely. And you haven't? Haven't let go of it completely. But it it still kicks in. So you recognize that. And whatever the mind is up to, you know, there will be some. You can notice this, you know, when you sit and you're quiet, you can notice this stream of emotivity that just. And we identify with that. That's the story of my life. And it comes out of a grasping, a subtle grasping that is that is born in every moment. And it comes out of a sense of, of not enoughness. It's sort of a spiritual poverty that we that we feel, that we recognize inherently prior to word. It's subliminal. And it, and it's and so we're reaching out because we feel separate because of our identity with the self. We feel separate and we're reaching for something. And it's very subtle at first, but it turns into all of our grasping and resistance. But if we recognize right in the heart of that what is taking place, if we recognize grasping, like for example, desire, desire, this deep desire, or boredom is a great one. Oh, I'm bored. My God, I'm sitting here, I'm just, nothing's happening. So if you stop and watch that process in the mind, you discover that that whole process of boredom is all about the mind, the sense of self, wanting to construe something real so that it can feel that it actually exists. When you see that, and you see the the kind of sense of discouragement maybe that you feel in the moment, and you rest with that discouragement, there is no discouragement. When you actually allow it to be, and kind of what I was saying a moment ago, just have a, a sense of kindness about it. We let, the, we let this discouragement be. We're fine. We're no longer bored. We're no longer discouraged. Everything is impermanent, arising and passing. And it's only our grasping for things that makes them real. That's the one more question. Yes, Jim. Hello, you were doing the exercise with the rock and the bone. It made me think about how I can sometimes think people are a certain way. You know, like at work will be somebody that has been difficult for years, and so my mind will say, oh, they're just difficult. Then I'll run into them in the supermarket or on the bike path or something. They're absolutely the most delightful people I've ever met. You know, it's just so amazing. Yeah. That's the way it works. And we, we can discover from those kinds of experiences how fickle the mind is. And it's got a story about everything. We don't have to believe any of it. But if we don't believe it, then it's sort of like we can appreciate it. Because we're not invested in it. We can see it. And it's like, this is the true meaning of life. Is in this moment the meaning that's showing itself. And if we're, if we're vested in kindness, then our experience, which is kindness is selflessness, then our experience is free and open. Enjoy it. It's, it's wonderful. Any other, one more, one short. I want yes. to say that I, um, 
I, I have great respect and compassion for all of you teachers. You know, and I've known you for a long time, time for fundamental class and practitioners and friends. But it's, uh, I think you all do a very good job of trying to explain something that is a big mystery and is not explainable and is the cloud of unknowing. And I, you, you, it's really, it must be frustrating for you people. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Well, it's true. We just keep struggling with the I process. Know. You know. <laughs> just keep trying to come up with something. Try to get it. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. All right. Okay, so let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close. And you're welcome to stick around and uh, have some tea. Until we meet again, peace to you all.